0: Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today on the air on radio. What sets my Book Club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. George Papadopoulos has a brand new book out. It's called Deep State Target Friday, he was the subject of a front page story, New York Times Above the Fold, which began this way. The conversation at a London bar in September of 2016 took a strange turn when the woman sitting across from George Papadopoulos, a Trump campaign advisor, asked a direct question. Was the Trump campaign working with Russia? The woman had set up the meeting to discuss foreign policy issues, but she was actually a government investigator posing as a research assistant, according to people familiar with the operation. The FBI sent her to London as part of the counterintelligence inquiry open that summer to better understand the Trump campaign's links to Russia. This is George Papadopoulos. Hey, George, thanks so much for being here.
1: Hey, Michael. Thanks so much. Good morning.
0: I I enjoyed having you on CNN on Saturday, and I told you at the end of the conversation, I, I was keenly interested to know what would the Mueller investigation find relative to collusion or lack thereof, and I am equally interested to know all about the origin of this probe. I feel like I'm a bit unique because people seem to be rooting for one or the other, but not both. I am.
1: Hey, I think all of America should be rooting for both. And uh, one thing about my uh, book and my story is I never wanted it to be partisan. In fact, I believe it's an American story, and uh, it needs to be revealed. And a lot of my story actually overlaps into both of these uh, narratives. One, the Russian narrative, which I always never bought into and I always thought was fake because I lived it. And uh, two, this new narrative that's coming out now about the origins, which I think is very real and I'm squarely in the middle of as well.
0: Do you know who Azra Turk is?
1: Azra Turk um, is a very beautiful uh, mid-30s blonde girl um, who's a Turkish dual American uh, national who met with me at a bar in London um, and was basically part of this operation with Stefan Helper But, uh, you know, as I told you on your show on Saturday, I don't think she was FBI. And uh, I even tweeted about why I don't think she was FBI, um, simply for the fact that this operation was in London, and the FBI usually doesn't need to bring Americans to London to spy on them, considering I was living in uh, Chicago at the time. Um, And Stefan Helper actually had a house in Virginia where he was meeting other Trump associates at, uh, I think, uh, Mike Flynn and... uh, Uh, No, I'm sorry. He actually met Mike Flynn in London, but he met uh, Sam Clovis and Carter Page and I think uh, Peter Navarro uh, in Washington, D.C. So it never made uh, enough sense to me that this would have been an FBI operation. I think it was CIA and her profile fits uh, of a CIA asset of some nature. She might not have been full time with the agency. She might have been affiliated with a foreign intelligence service, but I don't think she was FBI and uh, quite frankly, you know, even the New York Times uh, never stated that she was FBI either. They uh, they made it a point to uh, push back against any allegations that she was FBI, and they left it as a government uh, informant or something like that.
0: Yeah, the, wor- the words, the FBI sent her to London. By the way, you shared with me, you led me to a, a Facebook page of someone <laughs> identifying themselves as Azra Turk, and I... I clipped that photograph. You can't see her face, but she's got long blonde hair. And I put it on my website. Uh, Do you believe that that picture is a picture of of the woman with whom you met?
1: Yes, I I think that's her. Um, It was the same blonde hair, same body type. Um, Like I said, you know, very beautiful. I Fortunately, I had a girlfriend at the time, so my senses were a little uh, more astute than they probably would have been if I was single. You know, you never know. Okay, um, I I was a young guy, uh, 28 years old, you know, enjoying my life. And uh, who knows what would have happened?
0: You told me she didn't offer you sex, but she made it clear that it was there for the asking.
1: Well, look, no woman, I don't care who you are, even if you're on a job, if you know what I'm saying, is just going to simply say, hey, let's start doing something. It doesn't, even in the most assorted uh, place in the world, it doesn't happen like that. But of course, when you're holding somebody's hand, like she was holding my hand and, uh, you know, laughing and flirting and uh, taking me for drinks and dinner. And then, uh, as as the New York Times uh, quoted some emails I shared, where she's, uh, you know, putting smiley faces and uh, saying, I can't wait to see what the future holds for us. I mean, what kind of a person or this is not FBI. I mean, unless the FBI has uh, completely retrained its agents to uh, to act in this manner, um, I think it, it really uh, sullies the reputation of the FBI if indeed she was an FBI agent because uh, this doesn't look like an American intel uh, agency would uh, act like that. Even in uh, the worst thing operations, Um, You know, where they're looking at, you know, uh, sex trafficking or criminal things like that and an FBI undercover agents involved, they'll act like they're doing something, but they'll never touch the person like this woman was touching me on my in my hands and on my shoulder. It was something different. Uh, And, uh, you know, I've been I've been reached out to by Congress. I I, I won't name by who or by which committee about this individual. And I think uh, they believe uh, she was an FBI either, by the way.
0: So, George, talk me out of the idea that this is good counterintelligence work. The FBI gets tipped off from the Australians that you shared with them a knowledge of the Russians having dirt before WikiLeaks. They've got Carter Page, Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort already You know, in their orbit. So they put it all together and they say, geez, we we should pursue this. I mean, maybe they're to be credited for saying Papadopoulos is this handsome young guy. We'll send out a curvaceous blonde and see what she can learn.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's let's look at the facts now. okay? And and the timeline, because the timeline is critical here, especially in my story. I joined the Trump campaign in March of 2016, okay? I didn't meet this individual until September of 2016, so that's around six months after I I originally started. By the time I even met this Alexander Downer person, who you referenced that I was talking about, quote, dirt ads, um, I had been approached on April 15th, so this is important for the listeners and for everyone to understand timelines now. March 21st, I'm officially part of the campaign. March 31st, I join uh, a meeting with Donald Trump at his hotel. Uh, April 15th, two weeks after that, the Australian government reaches out to me out of the blue. Why would the Australian government reach out out of the blue to me on April 15th from this lady, Erica Thompson, and start probing me and telling me that Trump is this pariah and he's a threat to international peace and security and global trade agreements? I laughed it off at the time. April 26th, 11 days after the Australians initially reach out to me, Joseph Mifsud, this... uh, Bizarre character who is now being investigated for possibly being an FBI asset, by the way, by uh, Congressman Devin Nunes and, and members of uh, the intelligence community. He tells me one day over lunch at a five-star hotel in London, and you know, not not usually the place where you talk about a conspiracy, you know, in front of 50 other people in a dining hall. Hey George, you know that the Russians have Hillary Clinton's emails, and I know all about it. And I just absorb this information. I, I've heard a lot of. Uh, strange uh, gossip in my time uh, as, you know, working in D.C. and in think tanks and in the energy business. So I kind of laughed that off. And I just thought he might have been validating a couple of rumors. After that, that's when things get very strange. And my time in London becomes uh, the timeline becomes even more important. So April 26, 2016, Joseph Mipson tells me this information. May 2nd, I'm approached by the British government from 10 Downing Street where a man named Tobias Elwood, who at the time was the number two at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and was actually in the running to be the Minister of Defense, calls me on my cell phone while I'm in London and wants to get to know me a little bit. May 4th, two agents or assets of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, reach out to me from the U.S. Embassy named Gregory Baker and Terrence Dudley, where they're probing me as well about my professional background and in Trump in Russia. And after all of this, these three incredibly strange weeks in London, the same Australian official who I had met on April 15th says, Hey George, would you like to meet my boss, Alexander Downer? He really wants to meet with you. Now this is important. I meet with Alexander Downer on May 10th and immediately upon sitting with this individual, I realized that we're not here to talk about the U S Australia relationship. Uh, In fact, he's quite hostile and belligerent. I explain this all in my book. I, I go through a play by play of how strange his behavior was and, he wants to know three things. One, what are my ties to the energy business in the Middle East? So he had a professional interest in me or some sort of interest in me personally. Two, what, tr- what Trump was going to do with China. And three, he was playing with his phone to the extent and what I felt he was doing was spying and recording on my conversation. Now, why is this so important? Fast forward to my meetings with Mueller and the FBI when I was being interrogated for this uh, crazy situation I found myself in. I told the FBI and Bob Mueller, I felt that Alexander Downer was spying on me and recording my conversation, okay? And they told me, Andrew Goldstein and Aaron Zelensky, two of the prosecutors of Mueller's team and the FBI agents in the room and my lawyers, they said, how did you know he was recording your conversation, meaning this Alexander Downer person? And I showed them with my phone what he was doing, and you could hear a needle drop in the room. It's as if this should have never been spoken about. Now, why is this so important? Then that story in the New York Times came out where he and I were apparently drunk and uh, talking about dirt and emails, okay, and that I was some sort of uh, you know sloppy drunk. Now I don't know how sloppy of a drunk I could have been when I re- was, when I had the ability to report him to the FBI and Mueller for spying on me and recording on me. And another reason why this is so important is because uh, now that we're talking about declassification and the origins of this investigation, as you started this conversation about, when Donald Trump about four or five months ago, decided that he wanted to declassify FISA warrant material, even as the uh, Mueller probe was ongoing, there were two U.S. allies that called him and said, please don't declassify any material. And no one knew who those allies were, except a couple people. And I was one of them because uh, I was dealing with those two allies. It was the Australians and the British. And people were asking, why would they not want Donald Trump to declassify FISA warrant material? How would they even know what's in these FISA warrant materials, unless they were actively involved in some sort of operation or spying on Americans and Trump associates. So the last thing I'll say on this is I highly recommend people read my uh, transcript under oath to Congress. I, I testified six months ago in front of Mark Meadows and John Radcliffe and a couple Democrats on the Oversight Committee. And uh, if you see the questions that they're asking me pointedly about whether I ever received or reviewed transcripts, of my meetings with any of these people, including Joseph Mifsud, Alexander Downer, Stefan Halper, and I said I never did, and their reaction basically—I uh, was able to deduce from what they said that these people were assets, and uh, they weren't simply concerned diplomats or, or uh, you know, passing along sensitive information, but by but might actually have been part of a pre-planned operation against me. And, uh, you know, that's why I, I felt it was very important for me to share the, uh, the timeline so that you could understand that most of these meetings I was having were not simply random. And, uh, you know, they were very uh, possibly well orchestrated.
0: OK, let, let me say, first of all, I took notes of the timeline because I'm fascinated with it. And I do want to understand yes, what you're saying. A critic listening to this would say, wait a minute, this is a guy who pled guilty to making false statements to the FBI. Why should we take his word for it?
1: Sure. Um, So what my official uh, let me explain how the federal uh, judicial system (laughs) works in this country, because I'm new to it as much as uh, probably ninety nine point nine percent of the listeners here. Um, When you have the full force of the federal government zeroing in on you for 10 months and uh, you're just entering your career as a 29 year old uh, and your funds are limited and you don't have a million dollars to go to trial, you're going to go for the best deal, whether, you know, everything is accurate in your file or not. That's what I'll say on that. But why is this important? Even my charging document, okay, my my actual lie, whatever the lie was, was about me misremembering or mischaracterizing when I met somebody 11 months before the FBI came to talk to me about it. That's actually in my, you could Google it right now, and you could see that Papadopoulos was charged because uh, he said that he met Joseph Mifsud before he joined the campaign. But he actually was part of the campaign when he met Joseph Mipsod. And in my opinion, and I think probably everyone's who's listening to this right now, that's called a perjury trap. It happens in this country all the time. It happened to me. It could have ha- it could happen to anyone. That's the only thing I'll say about that. I think I, I, anybody can, uh, with a fourth grade uh, reading ability, can uh, you know read my status of offense and see for themselves George. what this uh, dangerous lies about.
0: I know, I know you're limited on time. Let, let me ask what I think is, is the most important big picture question. I, I get... Sure, sure. See, for many of us who, who look at this story, we sort of begin your chapter by saying, so he sits down with this Australian diplomat, he tells what he knows about dirt on Hillary Clinton, and, and that starts the clock. <laughs> and what I've just heard you say is people need to understand that there were a lot of mysterious contacts, people entering your orbit bit for a two-month time period before you ever met Downer. That's the short version, right?
1: Absolutely. And and actually, and I'm very happy that we're having this really fruitful discussion because you're asking great questions and, and very honest questions, okay? Because that is absolutely correct. The old narrative was that my story started at this bar, okay? But I'm giving you facts, and these facts are documented in emails I have and um, other correspondence. Now, why Actually, my story goes back even before this. I had joined uh, the Ben Carson campaign in uh, November of 2015, okay? And by the time that I joined the Ben Carson campaign in 2015, I have documents of this as well. I was approached by uh, U.S. embassy officials in London to meet with me while I was in London as well. Now, why is this important? And and one of the guys, and if you're taking notes, you could write his name because I'm going to be probably talking about him or his name might be, public moving forward in some uh, subsequent reports, David Kovach, K-O-V-A-T-C-H. This guy was the head of the Energy Department at the U.S. Embassy in London, which, and my background was in the energy business in a very sensitive part of the world and and in Israel and Cyprus. Now, uh, why would the U.S. Embassy, as I'm on a rival presidential campaign, be meeting with me as well, now that we know that the U.S. Embassy in London had a key role to play in all of this uh, I don't want to call it a mechanization or, a, you know, a manufactured uh, story around me and this uh, entire collusion story, but they were meeting with me as early back as November of 2015. Is it a coincidence or was there something a little more insidious going on? And that's well, what tie I it, think. Okay, but tie uh, it all
0: uh, together. Why the interest in a 29-year-old energy consultant?
1: Well, you know, that's actually why I wrote my book.
0: Listen to Michael live, Weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Okay, but tie it all together. Why the interest in a 29-year-old energy consultant?
1: Well, you know, that's actually why I wrote my book. And, uh, you know, I just want to make it clear that this 29-year-old consultant at the time was the one that brokered the meeting between Donald Trump and the Egyptian president at uh, the UN General Assembly with Steve Bannon. So I had a lot of contacts in the Middle East. I was very precocious, I guess, in uh, my in my uh, you know foreign policy uh, work and my network that I had. I had worked at the Hudson Institute for five years. It's one of the most prominent think tanks in Washington. Uh, I worked with people like Scooter Libby, Doug Feith, Uh, Seth Cropsey. These were, you know, the people running the Pentagon and uh, the White House under three administrations. So people, you know, like you said, they they think that my story begins and ends at a bar in London, while my story begins in Washington and uh, starts off in the energy business and uh, facilitating some very sensitive agreements between American allies in the Middle East that had never been done before. And that's how I was able to basically call the Egyptian embassy and say, hi, I know my candidate at the time seems kind of renegade but you need to meet with him and that's why the egyptian president met with trump at the u.n general assembly in september of 2016 and the new york times has covered this actually in the past uh the washington post has but you know these types of details about my story have been thrown under the rug and like you said we think that papadopoulos is this guy drinking at a bar the story goes back a lot further I've I've given you names, dates, uh, some details of these individuals, and I think that's what, uh, you know, Congress now is investigating. And uh, the last thing uh, I'll say about some of these characters is, uh, and about uh, false narratives, Joseph Mifsud. right? He's equally aligned with my story as much as this uh, bar event in London. And Joseph Mifsud was characterized to the world as this Russian cutout who was talking about emails with me. Now, as David Nunes and uh, his committee is looking into this, they sent a letter to Gina Haspel, uh, Secretary Pompeo, the uh, DIA, NSA, and all the U.S. intelligence agencies and the State Department to get more information about Joseph Mifsud, because after they've done their own due diligence and investigation into him, they've seen that not only has he been living openly next to the U.S. Embassy in in Rome for the last two years— ever since he's gone underground. But all of his connections are to Western intelligence agencies, including the FBI, the MI6, Italian intelligence, and uh, even the State Department, where he was speaking at in February of 2017. So there was something else going on in my story. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not the black and white story of probably Michael Cohen or Paul Manafort or, or one of these people who, you know, was involved in some financial schemes. And that's why I think my story, you know, it, it wasn't, given the, the, the proper um, service or not service but proper uh, looked into the way it should have been because it has nothing to do with financial crimes it has everything to do with counterintelligence and counterintelligence is not black and white and that's uh, what part of what you know I've tried to do in here in this conversation we're having and uh, what I think uh, you know some of the declassified material that the president is talking about is going to reveal as well.
0: Final question, by the way,
1: of why of, of, of why all the interest in this 29 year old, that's how we're going to get to the bottom of it when we declassify the material and why I'm so uh, hopeful that the president doesn't does it sooner rather, rather than later.
0: The book is called Deep State Target. A final question. I'll read one line from the Mueller report. Quote, finally, sure. the office investigated whether one of the above campaign advisors, George Papadopoulos, acted as an agent of or at the direction and control of the government of Israel. What's that all about?
1: <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, that's actually why my background is I'm not, I'm not saying I'm an Israeli agent, of course not. But uh, that's actually what I think my entire case really was all about. I believe that's why, as I mentioned to you, as early as November of 2015, I had high-level State Department officials uh, asking to meet me at the U.S. Embassy in London because at the time I was an energy consultant dealing with uh, the Israeli energy sector. Uh, I was actually one of the, uh, you know, uh, recognized experts on this in that field. And uh, that's what Stefan Halper paid me $3,000 to write a report about. So, um, what I think this my entire case was really all about and why the eyes were on me was because I had access to uh, the Israelis, the Cypriots, and the Egyptians all at the same time in that part of the world discussing energy uh, partnerships. And uh, quite frankly, that's a very difficult thing to do, especially for somebody in their 20s, but I was able to uh, to achieve it. And that's going to put eyes on you. And it's not going to put the eyes of the FBI on you. It's probably going to put the eyes of the CIA and foreign intelligence, possibly even Israeli intelligence on me. And uh, what I think happened here, this was a massive, uh, uh, you know, counterintelligence, you know, investigation into me to find out what those ties were. Were they legal? Were they illegal? Why did he have such high-level ties? And because they never could find out the answer, or, or they might have surmised, that I was doing something illegal. They decided to threaten me with a FARA violation for my uh, dealings with the Israelis, which was absurd. I never have taken even $1 from any governments, let alone the Israeli governments. And uh, it just goes to show you to the extent that uh, these investigators went after me to uh, basically uh, charge me with something. And um, that may- maybe that was part of the reason why I pled guilty to... Uh, to lying. But it's a, it's a much bigger story than uh, people have reported. This Israeli angle that you just uh, uh, referenced is very, very important. And uh, moving forward, I think a lot of what's the material has declassified about me is all going to zero in on uh, possibly Israel and not anything to do with Russia. So I'll leave it at that for now.
0: Final question. Did you ever contemplate calling American authorities, FBI, CIA, the U.S. embassy to report any of this multitude of characters that that you thought you needed to drop the dime on?
1: Well, as I stated, I reported Alex Henner Downer to the FBI and to Bob Mueller um, during my investigations with them Uh, or not, not not my investigations with them, my uh, my discussions with them. So, of course, I was uh, very suspicious of Alexander Downer, the Australian diplomat. Um, I wasn't uh, I, at the time. Of course, I was suspicious of Stefan Halpern, Turk, but I didn't feel the need to report them because I thought they were just two sloppy agents. But I felt that Alexander Downer was a much more uh, uh, cr- well-crafted in his uh, tr- whatever craft he was trying to do. And so I reported him. And, of course, uh, I volunteered the information about Joseph Mifsud to the FBI when they came to my house. And uh, unfortunately, by doing that, I then get caught in a perjury trap about when I met the guy. So uh, that's that's essentially uh, the story. I do feel that uh, Americans, if uh, they do hear something or they are being they feel that they're being spied on by both enemies and allies, they should report it because uh, moving forward in the 2020 election. Um, I hope that any campaign of whether it's Kamala Harris or Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, if, they're inv- if they, uh, you know, find themselves in a similar situation as George Papadopoulos did in 2016 when they're dealing with an Australian ambassador or a, or a random professor, you know, it's probably better to be on the safe side and, uh, and report it sooner rather than later.
0: Hey, George, thank you so much for being gracious with your time. The book is called Deep State Target. I appreciate it very much.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much.
0: That's George Papadopoulos hear more of michael smirconish on sirius xm's potus channel 124 live weekdays from 9 a.m to noon east or anytime on the sirius xm app connect with michael on facebook twitter youtube and at smirconish.com book club with michael smirconish new episodes drop mondays wednesdays and fridays